Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's April 26th, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 5 of Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week, it's Gabe's turn to choose the topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose the 40th anniversary of the first patient diagnosed with HIV-AIDS. For our conversation on all things sports, we'll talk about the rise and fall of the European Soccer League. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, a social media beef. After that, we're going to share our interview with Team DC member club, the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. Yeah. First, a quick update on Team DC. Team DC and its member clubs continue to partner with Nelly's Sports Bar for the Heroes for Heroes campaign, providing free meals to DC frontline workers. Recent meals were delivered to the Community of Hope Family Clinic and the staff at the Sports and Entertainment Vaccine Delivery Site. A big shout out to all our sponsors of, the, of this week's meals, including Team DC, DC Gay Basketball League, Adventuring, and Stonewall Kickball Teams, the Secret Servicers, the Blue Ballers, the Mounties, the Scorgies, and the Swallows. For a starting donation of just $50, you or your organization can sponsor one of these meals. If you're interested, please contact Brent Miner at brent at teamdc.org. As COVID restrictions start to ease, member clubs are beginning to increase some activities. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports. Gabe and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast to help us out. And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe to Under the Bleachers for all of the latest news at the intersection of sports and queer. Now here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. Okay, for my quid topic. We can all agree that 2020 has been a challenging year as the world battled the COVID-19 pandemic. But this year, our community must pause and reflect on another global health crisis, the AIDS epidemic. 2021 marks the 40th anniversary of the first U.S. patient to be diagnosed with AIDS. On April 24, 1980, Ken Horn of San Francisco was reported to the Center for Disease Control as a patient with Kaposi's sarcoma and a cryptococcus infection. In 1981, the CDC classified Horn as the first patient in the U.S. to be diagnosed with what would now be known as the Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Much like the early days of the COVID pandemic, anxiety and fear of the unknown sped throughout our community. No one knew exactly how this disease spread and the government was slow to react. It would take President Ronald Reagan four years from the start of the AIDS epidemic to acknowledge the health crisis in public. 
Grassroots activists like ACT UP staged massive events across the country, including storming the NIH campus in Bethesda to protest Dr. Anthony Fauci, who at the time, they believed, was not doing enough to increase the treatment and research efforts. Dr. Fauci worked with the activists and later would be commended for his work in HIV AIDS research and policy changes in clinical trials that saved a countless number of lives. During the 35th anniversary of the first diagnosis, Dr. Fauci reflected on the early days and almost a day and night comparison of how far we have come from detection and treatment. Today, approximately 1.2 million Americans are living with HIV and one in seven are un unaware of their infection. With the increase of safer sex measures, education, advancements in HIV treatment and prevention, new infections have dropped by two thirds since the height of the epidemic. We still have a long way to go though, especially with reaching marginalized populations that have seen an increase in infections. Today, HIV AIDS is no longer a death sentence, but we need to pause and remember those we have lost and listen to the stories of those who lived during some of the darkest days for the LGBTQ community. Hey, Laura, so what do you think about the coincidences kind of in the early days of the uh, COVID pandemic and also the AIDS pan epidemic? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you, I, I don't know. It's a tough comparison for me. I mean, I think when you think about the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, right? Like it was, it wasn't even called that right at first. Like it was called GRID, which was Grid. something about like gay men. Like basically it was treated as this gay cancer. And a lot of people were sort of treating it as like, see, I knew all along that the gays were bad and would be wiped off the face of the earth for their sins. So a lot of, um, you know, at the beginning of that, pandemic or epidemic um, was treated very differently than COVID-19, right? Like a lot of people treated it as something that was, could not affect them, would have no effect on them and was some kind of like righteous thing that was happening to rid the world of sin. So whereas with COVID-19, it was pretty um, immediately recognized as something that could attack anybody and therefore the entire world was reacting to it as an important thing that needed to be fought. Um, and, you know, even here in our own country, the government pretended that AIDS wasn't a problem for many years, unlike COVID-19 that most people jumped on immediately. So, yeah, I think it's very different. Um, but, you know, there's lessons to be learned from all of this. What we have to remember about the HIV AIDS epidemic is, you know, how many like an entire generation of gay visionaries just lost to this awful disease. What art we would have had, what, you know, what brilliance we would have had, maybe how much faster the movement for equality in our community would have moved if um, it wasn't a literal struggle to stay alive. You know, um, it's just, it's really a, it's really a disappointing um, period in our history when you look at how slow our government was to react and help to protect the community. But we are in a much better place today. And thank goodness for that. Um, I do think, you know, we have to stress that just because HIV AIDS is no longer or no longer has to be a death sentence, it is still a very serious disease that people should still be taking very seriously. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, wow compared to where we were in the 1980s, we are certainly in a much better place today. Yeah, and I think we're really lucky, especially, you know, the younger generation of, of 
you know, the community that we still have people that lived through these times and we can hear their stories and talk about it because they're it's, not it's, that old. No, it was 40 it was years ago. It's not that long ago, right? It's not I mean, that long ago. When I was in high school, there was still nothing. There was no prep. There was no AIDS treatment that was working. And when I was in high school, it was still taught to us as this is a death sentence. And it was something that was terrifying. We talked about it last season when we had like shows like Pose and stuff like that, that actually t- like were set in, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And just seeing people going to funerals every other day just yeah. you know, burying their friends and it was I, I, I talked to some um some of my friends and some people were talking about days when they would count you know how many people died how many funerals are they going to um no i mean gay men that i know in their late 50s early 60s lost three quarters of their friends in the 80s to this disease yeah you know it just it, it's mind-boggling to think about like if covid19 was you know killing as many people per capita as hiv aids were could you imagine i mean it like because COVID is spread so much easier it's just much less lethal than hiv aids um if if aids was spread as easily as covid i can't even imagine what would have happened yeah i mean presumably that would mean that the government would have treated it differently and maybe we would have had a faster response but wow and one thing you have to realize is that part of the reason why science has advanced so much and why it's quicker and easier now for scientists to build vaccines is they learned so much about vaccine technology from their fight of the aids epidemic over the last 40 years i mean part of the reason why the COVID-19 vaccine was able to be developed as quickly as it was is because of all the work that scientists have done in the last 40 years trying to fight AIDS. Oh, yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, we don't have an AIDS vaccine yet, but the news reports in this last couple of months have been pretty promising about huge advancements in that direction as well. So yeah, with the new new mRNA technology and, you know, the way we can produce and create vaccines faster. yeah, it's promising. And a lot, again, yeah, a lot of the research did come from uh, scientists working on fighting AIDS and HIV and actually studying the virus and seeing what happens. And so there's ways that we can stop and curb it. And we're doing it, you know, more people are getting tested, more people are on prep, more people are actually thinking about it, and uh, which, which is great. And that's one of the ways that we can actually mitigate the disease and get rid of AIDS completely is just by people actually being conscious and knowing one, know your status and be open with your status and share it. Uh, also, don't marginalize people who have HIV and stigmatize them because that's horrible. And um, yeah, there's different ways that we can work with our community and just talk about it and make sure that we still keep it in the forefront of our minds sometimes. I know it's hard and difficult to have these conversations, but we still need to be aware that it's still happening. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. It's very important to know your status, be open and honest about your status. Um, and there's absolutely no reason that anybody who's living with HIV or AIDS needs to be treated differently or stigmatized. That said, we still should be taking very um, strong efforts to try to avoid um, passing the virus, spreading the virus. I mean, it's still a very serious disease that has very serious health consequences. Um, so 
And I mean, what we know now is that with the treatments that we have now, a person who is living with HIV can get to undetectable levels where it is safe for them to have sexual contact with uninfected people and not risk spreading the disease to them. There are, we have the treatments today for that to be the case. Um, you just, if you are positive, you just need to take those steps and make sure that you stay undetectable if you're going to be having sexual contact with people who don't have the virus. And everybody needs to continue to take these very serious precautions because even though we do have great treatments now, that is still not a reason not to be vigilant about not spreading the virus. It's still a very serious virus that people need to take very seriously. And I've read some, anecdotally at least um, some, some uh, stories this year about doctors are finding that people who even are HIV positive these days, like some of the younger people are not treating it like it's a serious illness. They're treating it like it's just any other thing that you can get. And so they're not being diligent about their own care when they are positive. And that is very dangerous. I mean, if you don't treat this seriously, if you are HIV positive, it can still kill you. So even though it's no longer a death sentence, we all have to still be very vigilant about taking care of ourselves and taking care of others. Um, so get tested regularly. And if you are positive, make sure that the people that you have contact with that might be at risk are, you know, that you let them know immediately and that everybody's aware and then just make sure you get the right treatment and everything will be fine, but take it seriously. It's still a very serious thing. And I hope that in my lifetime, we will see the eradication of this disease. Definitely take care of yourself. Actually, you know, pay attention to your body, pay attention to what's going on. Seek help because you're not in it alone. There's a whole bunch of people. There's a whole bunch of resources in the community that's out there to help you. Um, but yeah, just be vigilant and take care of yourself. I mean, if you're local, DC has some of the greatest resources. You can get free HIV medication if you're HIV positive. There's all kinds of um, programs and help. So don't hesitate to seek it out. You absolutely deserve to live a happy, healthy life um, as an HIV positive person if, if you are. So go get the resources and, you know, be your greatest self. That's all very cool. And I guess once again, thank you to Dr. Fauci, who has dedicated his life to making the world a safer place and a healthier place for all of us. <laughs> All right, Gabe, what's going on in the world of sports? Okay, so moving to my sports topic. This week was one of the wildest weeks in European soccer. All right, so on April 18th, some of Europe's greatest football clubs, including Real Madrid, Manchester United, Barcelona, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Liverpool, announced that they would be leaving their respective leagues and join a 20-team Super League that was billed as having quote, the best clubs the and the best players every week. Plans for the Super League had been in work since 1998, but never really took off. The new league would consist of 15 founding clubs and five clubs who would qualify annually. Many clubs were hit hard due to the COVID pandemic and believed that the Union of European Football Association's Champions League was obsolete and hindered the business growth of each team. European soccer leagues traditionally reward players achievements and performance on the field. But this new league would instantly award status and guaranteed revenue for the founding clubs. Real Madrid president Florentino Perez Rodriguez began discussions with clubs from England, Italy, and Spain to break away and create this new super league. And JP Morgan Chase 
pledged $5 billion toward the formation of the league. Almost immediately, the Super League faced a huge backlash from angry fans, FIFA executives, and local politicians. Over 1,000 fans stopped traffic and protested outside of Chelsea Stanford Bridge Stadium, and within 48 hours of the new league's announcement, six English teams of the 12 teams that were originally signed on pulled away from the deal and rejoined the Premier League. The European Soccer League instantly folded. Juventus, Atletico Madrid, Inter Milan, and AC Milan also pulled out from the league, and Betis later backtracked and stated that the league would be on a standby alert. Ultimately, this is seen as a huge win for fans who saw the new league as just another example of greed in professional sports. Uh, this is kind of like a late-breaking story, so who knows what's going to happen next, but it doesn't look good for the Super League, and it does seem like it's a big win for uh, sports fans everywhere. So, Laura, were you aware of the Super League, and what do you think about money and power and how it's kind of tainted professional sports? Um, so, look, I was aware only that, you know, I saw on Twitter some fan reactions as some of these teams were announcing that they were leaving to join the Super League, and I saw frankly, um, fans on both sides. Some fans were celebrating it because they thought it was exciting for their club to participate only in this super league of elite, what was supposed to be, I guess, elite teams. Um, and of course, then there were other fans who were complaining about it. Um, but I, you know, I, I actually hadn't heard that <laughs> they so quickly had backtracked. <laughs> but I don't know if I'm surprised. And, you know, as far as has money and power tainted professional sports, like, I don't know, since when is this new? Like, like people, people play professional sports, most of them, and it's, they make a ton of money and they are huge revenue generators um and does that impact the quality of the sports i don't know i mean athletes are super competitive individuals who want to play perform their best and be the best at what they do so i don't think the level of player competition has ever um that negatively impacted by the money and power problem you know all the the problem that i see is that it makes it make sports um, less and less accessible to the everyday person, which I think is a bummer. But for the major sports where they're on TV every day, you know, I'm not sure it's the biggest deal, right? Like, I mean, every honestly, like, not that I think it's a great thing, but everything is inaccessible these days because we have huge wealth problems in this country in particular and in the world in general. I mean. Forget sports. Like, do you think the average everyday person can afford to go to Broadway anymore? No. I mean, there used to be affordable tickets on Broadway. They don't exist anymore. In the freaking back row of the upper, upper balcony, you're still paying 90 bucks a seat. You know, like that didn't use, that wasn't always the case. Um, and it wasn't even that long ago that it was different, but it's, so it's not just sports. I mean, but yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I don't think, I mean, money and power, they have an issue. They cause issues, but we're still getting great sports and great competition anyway. And it's just, unfortunately, most people have to watch it on TV because we can't afford to go watch it live, which, you know, is a, a different disappointing problem, but you're still getting great sports. I think the product is still fantastic. And I kind of thought a Super League was a cool idea. Because there's a billion soccer teams in the world. And, you know, having like the 
disparity in talent and everything else like kind of makes it you know i don't know i think it's not a not the worst idea in the world to have sort of a premier premier league it's it's one of those tough things to me it's kind of like these european teams were trying to create something like the nfl or major league soccer or the nba type of thing uh, within the countries because if you're familiar with like soccer um and tournaments and like the different leagues it's, it's almost like you know leagues in latin america where you have your top tier teams and i think it's i, I know in mexico it's the, the bottom the bottom two teams out of the tournament they go down to like the developmental league and yeah. the two leagues from there go up to the top league so your goal is not to be on the bottom because you go down so you can have a huge franchise it would be like um uh, you know, the Washington football team had a shitty season. They go down to the devel- developmental leagues and two teams would go up. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that women's rugby club rugby works in the United States. We have the WPL, which is the women's premier league. And at the end of each season, there's a relegation process where the top teams from division one can challenge the bottom teams in the WPL to a relegation match. And if they are successful, they will be into the WPL and take the place of that team, which for club level sports works great, honestly, to let you so that things don't just stagnate and you don't just assume that the top teams are always the top teams, because that's not always the case. Of course, in professional sports, you can't unless you have like a very interesting deal in place, like you can't just kick a team out of a league if when you have contracts and everything else in place, it doesn't work, you yeah. know, that well. So I think it would have to be a little different. Um, but, at the, but I guess I just don't ever think it's necessarily a bad idea, especially in a sport like soccer where there are so many teams. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bad idea to have a league that is just the elite of the elite um, competing against each other. Um, because I think that would be super exciting. It would be like having, you know, the world cup every freaking week, you know, like every year having a season, a whole season of the world cup, um, just spread out over a whole season every year, which would be awesome. Um, it's also probably impractical because for most countries to try to put together a team that's elite enough to join a league like that, you have to take people from all over a large country and people can't don't, most countries don't have the resources to like pay for their national team to be together every, you know, full time all the time. So. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And I thought it was was interesting that it was fan backlash that kind of spawned the team saying, okay, we're going to listen, let's pull back and let's go back to how things were. I mean, if you see some of these videos, these crazy Chelsea fans, which, you know, I have, a, I have a friend who's a huge Liverpool fan. I mean, they are they are fanatics. Like, this is insane. But, like, what was the fans' objection? Was it that it was going to get too expensive to follow their team if they were in Match- this elite league? Yeah, matches were going to get too expensive, and then it was kind of going to kind of be uh, almost like some of the problems that some of the U.S. teams have where you're just going to buy talent and stack your team and create a huge team. Yeah, which, uh, by the way, is hella fun for the team, by the way. Like, <laughs> and I, mean, I don't know. I, I Listen, I, I see all different ways. Like, remember when the United States basketball team finally lost a Olympic game and everybody freaked out. And then all of a sudden they opened the Olympic basketball team to professional players. And once again, it became ridiculous. <laughs> like, the United States is never going to lose another basketball game, right? Um. But that's, you know, that's kind of the thing, right? Like you can put together a quote unquote dream team, 
but if you're afraid of that, you know, salary caps are a really good way to make sure that that doesn't happen. So you can do it. You can just institute rules that make it so that you can't, you know, it, it's not the team with the most money that automatically is the best team. Cause that I do think makes it a little less fun. Like, cause like one, if the Mets could just go out and buy the best team in baseball, it would be super fun for one year to watch them like win all the games. And then you get, then yeah, you get bored. You're like, okay, this is ridiculous. Um, so, but you can certainly ha put rules in place that make that a more um, even thing. I am glad that if the majority of fans were opposed to this, and since the fans are the ones buying the product, it is good that they reacted and did what the fans wanted. Um, but it might be that the underlying idea is not all that bad. Somebody just has to put a plan together that makes fan make fans feel secure that what they're going to get is a better product yeah. and it's still going to be affordable because if you can convince fans that they're going to get a better product and it's still going to be accessible to them, then I don't think they're going to be opposed to it. You know, yeah, um, more... what I think it would be dangerous to is the sort of like next level of teams, the teams that are like just not quite good enough to get into the Super League, because then all of a sudden they might lose all their fans um, because maybe everybody only wants to spend their money on the Super League. Uh, you know, that might be a problem. So because um, obviously we can see in this country, like if you just look at the NBA, right, versus like that C League or whatever it's called, like we have a team here in DC that's the like C League, and nobody goes, nobody spends money on that team when they can just go to a Wizards game. Um, and it's, and if it, you know, for the teams just below the Super League, if it ends up being something like that, it, they might really be the worst victims of something like this. Well, I'm interested to see what's going to happen this week and next week because <laughs> it went. It took three years to build and 48 hours to fold. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, if if you could kill an idea that was three years in the making in just 48 hours with a couple of protests, then it was not a well developed idea, and somebody <laughs> needs to go back to the drawing board. So. RIP Super League sounds like you did not have a long run, but I'll be interested to see if somebody comes up with a revamped idea for something like this, because I think it still could work. Um, Gabe, what is up at the intersection of sports and queer? Okay, now coming back to our side of the pond, uh, for this week's topic of the intersection of sports and queer, we're diving into the social media beef between Brooklyn Nets star Kevin Durant and actor Michael Rappaport. Okay, so the drama began when Rappaport posted an Instagram conversation he had with KD that included some colorful comments and threats that were labeled as misogynistic and homophobic. I'm not going to read the messages, which are basically trash talking to each other, but if you want to check them out, Rappaport posted them on his Twitter feed. Durant later made a public apology stating, quote, I'm sorry that people have seen the language I use. That's not what I want people to see or hear from me, end quote. His apology was seen as remorse for his words coming into the public eye and not so much about what he said or the language he used. The NBA fined KD $50,000, which was seen as a slap on the wrist for using offensive and derogatory language on social media. Durant currently has a net worth of $170 million. The story has disappeared from the news cycle as, 
as Katie took to the court after missing 23 games due to a hamstring injury. Many LGBT fans and advocacy groups are saying that more should be done. Katie's supporters are upset that his private messages were released to the public. All right, Laura, so have you heard of this story? And do you think that professional athletes should be held accountable for what they say in private? And was Rappaport wrong for releasing these messages? And should the NBA do more? It's <laughs> a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> I heard this story. I think it's one of the stupidest stories I've ever heard. And I <laughs> spent very little time thinking about it. Um, but, you know, look, do I think Rappaport was wrong for releasing the messages? Probably not. I mean, look, don't send anybody anything over email or tweet or whatever. Like, if you put it out Instagram there, message. you can that can be screenshot become public. Yeah, it, it's a warning to everybody. Like, just don't, first off, don't be a dick and don't be stupid. Well, but this also, is the thing, don't... right? If you, if, you, if you don't want it to become public, if you would be concerned about what people would think if they hear it, then you probably shouldn't be fucking saying it, right? Yeah. Like, it's not okay to use abusive, homophobic, misogynistic language in any context. So if you're worried that if this gets out, people are going to think you're homophobic or misogynistic or a shitty human, then you shouldn't be saying it because, you know, they're equally bad if you say them to one person or to the world at large. So I don't feel bad for KD because he's just reaping the consequences of something he did, right? And, you know, I don't think there's like... Do I think it's weird when people blast their personal beefs over social media for the world to see? A little bit, I think it's weird, but I, I don't think it's inherently wrong. So, you know, that's where you come, I come out on that. Should the NBA do more? I think, yes. I do think that language is important. And if the NBA wants to take the position that they expect their players to live up to a higher standard and not use homophobic misogynistic abusive language if that is what the nba wants to be known as as an entity that cares about that and wants to stop it then they have to you can't do this halfway you either ignore it or you do something meaningful about it and a fifty thousand dollar fine against a man who has a net worth of 170 million dollars is nothing so the NBA is doing this half-assed thing where they want credit for taking in seriously but they also aren't actually taking any action that's going to have any consequence. Like Kevin Durant is not going to behave differently next time because of that $50,000 fine. So it's the NBA here is the worst of all actors because they are putting on like a performative show about how much they care, but clearly they're not taking any serious action. Um, do I think that I actually think that if KD is going to learn a lesson from this and is going to do anything differently going forward, it's going to be because of the backlash he gets, not because of the $50,000 fine, right? Um, I would say from his apology that it didn't appear to me that he took very seriously at all, except that he found it annoying that somebody posted his messages and then he had to deal with it. He didn't seem to like, to me anyway, to be super contrite about what he actually said which, you know, is disappointing, frankly, because I think everybody in this world needs to learn a lesson about how important it is to choose your words appropriately. And again, if you don't want to be seen as homophobic and misogynistic, then stop saying things that are homophobic and misogynistic. <laughs> and if you are saying these things and you don't know that they're homophobic or misogynistic, and then you're mad because somebody calls you out for being homophobic and misogynistic, okay, but here's the thing. Now you have the opportunity to learn the lesson, 
think about it, understand why the language was wrong or bad, and then change your behavior going forward, right? You have the opportunity to learn and live and grow. And we, you know, that's what we're supposed to do as humans. So there you go. I mean, come on, people, just stop. Stop being misogynists. Stop being homophobes. Be better humans. Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely could have been a learning moment. It could have been, you know, the apology was definitely could have been better. I I, I saw um, a couple of reports on ESPN and some, you know, some talking heads talking back and forth. And first they were blaming Rappenport. They're like, he shouldn't do this. But if you look at some of the comments, like, he was making threats to his wife and all these other things. And it was just like basically like shit talking to each other. And yeah, some of the comments were offensive. And it's like, no, don't do that. No, the other thing too, right, is like beyond the offensive language, beyond the misogyny, beyond the homophobia, beyond the slurs, he threatened to spit at him. Like that's like a threat of violence. And that is, you know, I don't blame Michael Rapport for putting him on blast for that, right? Like you can't threaten people over a silly beef, you know, like, come on, just stop it. Grow up, Kevin Durant. And also, like, I mean, I'm kind of glad for this. We're living in an age, again, where we all have cell phones, we all have smartphones. Anything can be screenshotted. Anything can be recorded. And, yeah, people are being brought back to, no, out to light because you're seeing what they're actually saying behind closed doors. And, yeah, it's, well, it's kind of Again, uh, it's your upsetting. opportunity to le- learn a lesson and be a better person going forward. Don't threaten people. Don't use misogyny and homophobia to color your language. Um, by the way, I also had forgotten that Michael Rappaport existed until this. So congratulations <laughs> to Michael Rappaport for getting back in the public eye because has he done anything in acting recently? Random TV shows, probably. That's about it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, he was in Friends for a while. Obviously, that was a million <laughs> years ago. But I remember he had an arc in Friends. And uh, he was in one of my favorite movies of all time. He was in Beautiful Girls, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But that was like 30 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. I I mean, it could be a little publicity stunt or, you know, trying to get his name in, of course. But look, I legitimately believe that being when someone threatens to spit on you and then brings your wife into it that you are outraged and justifiably so so i don't think his outrage was fake or anything and i do think he's a huge nba fan so this is probably something that is important to him and whatever but i don't think anybody in this situation did the right thing right did the wholly correct thing i think everybody has some blame but at the end of the day kevin durant is the one who used the language and made the threats. And so he's the one who should learn a lesson and do better. And hopefully he will. All right. That's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of Things Queer, Things Sports, and Things at the Intersection of Sports and Queer. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll share our interview with the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. Welcome back to the Bleachers. Today we have Josh Barton and Mike from the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. How are y'all doing today? My best. <laughs> Your best. <laughs> Introduce yourselves, each of you, and tell us how long you've been playing with the Scandals and if you have a position or anything you want to tell us about. Uh, hi, I'm Joshua Street. I have been playing with the Scandals for five years now. Uh, and I am a back, though slowly gaining weight and transitioning to a forward. And when I say slowly, I do mean quickly. 
Hi, Mike. Uh, I've been with the Scandal since 2017. Um, I played both back and forward, and these days I'm working on transitioning to the coaching side. I'm Barton. I joined the Scandals in fall 2018 when I first moved to DC. I'm currently the fundraising chair for the club, uh, and I play flanker. Glad you guys could join us. It's good to have you. Happy to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about the Scandals? How did you all get started, and uh, what brought you to rugby? Well, uh... The scandals were just born out of the uh, desire to have just another LGBTQ uh, space for people to play a game that they were kind of knew the rules to and <laughs> just wanted to hang out and really uh, play together. Um, I think they were formed about seven years ago. Correct me if my uh, timeline is off, but they've been going for a while now. And you guys are part of the USA Rugby? Yes, we are. What, uh, what competitive division do you play in? We're, we're in division four. Okay. And are, and you're also, um, an IGA team or I, sorry, IGR, IGR team. <laughs> yes. Uh, international gay rugby. So tell us about the scandals. How many players do you guys have? Are you recruiting? Yeah. So we currently have 57 active members, uh, and about 10 recruits, although we're working on more, there's been a lot more interest as the weather started to warm up and as, the pandemic situation has started to, you know, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. I think people are starting to think more about the activities they want to be doing once we're all sort of back to normal. Cool. And I, I recognize that a lot of rugby clubs, you know, there's sort of a spectrum sometimes between the level of competitiveness versus social side of the club. Like, where do you guys think you fall on a spectrum like that? Well, I think we're a pretty good mix. Um, we're definitely open to anyone uh, who wants to join at any skill level, whether like me, you've played rugby in college before, or if you're completely new to the sport and you don't know the difference between a ruck and a scrum, uh, we're happy to have people join us. Um, in terms of competition, in the past, in the time that I've been on the Scandals, we've had an A side and a B side, um, which allows players to safely develop their skills at the appropriate skill level and at the level of competitiveness that they're looking for. I joined, I joined straight out of college as a theater major and uh, I hadn't really played the sport before, but thought, let me try something new. And it was a learning and growing experience through which they really kind of uh, fostered that growth and really made sure that you felt like, hey, 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 at your own speed, don't, <laughs> don't do anything that's going to get you hurt. Cool. And where do these scales play? Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, uh, do you guys have a regular pitch where your home games are? We've, we've been trying for a long time to have a home pitch. It's just it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a difficult situation in Washington, D.C. because of the way that uh, the district uh, prioritizes uh, permits for fields. So uh, we've done our best to play our home matches at Harry Thomas, um, which is just just maybe two blocks east, east of North Capitol. So where, if you know where the Wendy's is, you're just a few blocks away. <laughs> uh, Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas Circle. Circle. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that Wendy survived getting hit by a car. Um, oh, I, uh, the city claimed it on uh, eminent domain to redo the intersection. Oh, all right. So, yeah. all right. So, um, tell me, do you guys regularly go to any particular tournaments around the country, nation, whatever? Oh, yeah. Like my very first game that I played with the Scandals was in Toronto, Canada at Beaver Bowl, which is always a lot of fun playing with the Canadian teams. Uh, and then there's, of course, uh, Queen City Cup down south in uh, uh, North Carolina. 
<laughs> and just uh, and we've gone to games in Columbus. Uh, that's the best part of rugby. We fostered real friendships with teams around the country. So they'll be like, "Hey, come play us over here," or we'll be like, "Hey, come down to DC and we'll host y'all and have a great time." So it's it's always great to be able to travel around and see friends that you uh, get to see just every now and then. So it's always a great time. One of one of my favorite tournaments uh, was Bingham Cup in Amsterdam. Um, which every two years uh, Bingham is held in honor of Mark Bingham. He's a, he was a, a gay rugby player that died on United Flight. Uh, was it? Um, yeah. Um, and so in his honor, this tournament is held every two years. Um, it kind of rotates between North America, Europe. Um, it could go to Australia. Conceivably, conceivably it could go to South America, um, Africa, Asia. So um, it's just a matter of time. So the, the next one is going to be in, uh, in Ottawa. It was unfortunately canceled last year because of COVID, um, but we'll be uh, heading back to Canada um, in 2022. Not going yeah. away. Awesome. The Bingham Cup is so fun. How many Bingham Cups have the Scandals played in? Two now? I believe um, Nashville was the first, so three, right? Oh, okay, great. Oh, you but, know, uh, I, yeah, I actually, I went to Nashville and I saw the Scandals play. So, yeah. yeah there were there were also some Scandals that went to Australia um, before that in, what, 2014? Mm-hmm. But the club was and small, we, so they, they kind of just teamed up with some other um, smaller teams at the time. And yeah. we have players who uh, played in the first Bingham Cup in uh, over in San Francisco and people who know, who knew Mark Bingham personally, and uh, I know one player, he shared a, a taxi with him to the hospital after a particularly rough game. So, <laughs> so. That's a cool little history. Exactly. I've, I've shared a taxi with Josh after a particularly rough game. Yep, they've always been hard. <laughs> All right. So um, what kind of, besides, uh, you know, regular matches and stuff, what other type of social events or uh, events do the, the Scandals host throughout the year? Yeah. Tell us about your non-rugby escapades. The uh, third half. But you know, tradition has it. Tradition has it that after every match we play, uh, we host you know a, a third half as we call it for um, a team that's traveling to play us, or uh, you know the host team will will host a third half, um, and that's a good chance for us to kind of set the game aside and really get to know the players on the other team, just have a great time, have some drinks, have some food, get to know each other, um, and that's always been a highlight of my experience. Um, aside from that, we also do fundraisers throughout the year. Uh, our big one every year is sequins and scrums. Our drag uh, fundraiser. But the last sequence in the scrums was in 2019 uh, and we were graciously hosted by Red Bear Brewing uh, over in Noma. Um, fantastic venue and we had a great time. Josh was uh, leading the, the ceremonies as Ariola Grande. With my sister, <laughs> of course, Margot Rita Swirls. <laughs> we were the Statler and Waldorf sitting on the side just judging the two moms the like, do evening. your best, baby. <laughs> I'm convinced that sequence and scrums is the real reason that Gabe joined the scandals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another, another reason to do drag. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is so special about rugby is that um, it really is. Everybody I know who plays rugby describes their team as more like a family than just a sports team. So, and and the whole rugby community um, really is like that. So tell me about how, you know, do you guys have any particular recruiting events or places that you go if somebody hasn't played rugby for, before and they just want to learn more about the scandals? Can they just show up to a practice? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> go ahead, <laughs> <move>. <laughs> 
Um, well, yeah, every every year we host, actually, I think, yeah, every season we host um, an event called Rugby 101, uh, where we welcome players of all skill levels to come meet the team, uh, work on some basic skills, just get a feel for what passing a rugby ball is like. Um, we got a lot of people who try to do a forward pass, uh, you know, their first time <laughs> around, but it's, it's America and it's football, right? Um, aside from that, I mean, you can usually find us at Uproar. <laughs> Uproar is uh, our longest run, one of our longest running sponsors. Um, and is sort of our home bar for the team. So pretty much any weekend, you can find at least a handful of scandals just hanging out, <laughs> whether or not it's an official event. Go yeah. to Uproar and look for one of those purple windbreakers. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying, if there's not a scandal at Uproar, wait five minutes. Just ask the bartenders. <laughs> they know all of us. All right. <laughs> um, so do you have any personal experiences about how playing rugby or joining the scandals has impacted your life? So for, for me... Um, I had been interested in playing the sport for a long time, but I never lived in a city that had a, um, an IGR rugby club. Um, and I felt like it was a little bit intimidating to just jump in and play with a bunch of very experienced players, um, especially in the, the military towns that, that I've lived in for the last 17 years, essentially. Um, and so when I got to D.C., um, myself and uh, my buddy Brendan McGee and uh, and a couple of other friends all decided let's just do this let's go check out the scandals there's finally a team there's finally an opportunity here let's see if there's a place for us we'll give it one practice and see how it goes and after that we were hooked and uh, it, it was a rare a rare day when we'd miss a practice since so um, definitely found a home with the scandals um, and people that I, I, I love and respect and, um, and I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, it's definitely been uh, exactly what I thought it would be when I joined the team, just a wonderful brotherhood of support uh, at all parts of our lives, whether we're uh, puking out behind uproar or crying in my car at 2 a.m., both Barton, we've done. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's always been a, uh, uh, a support system that's like, hey, even when we're not on the pitch, uh let me know how you're doing i mean make sure you got home let me make sure that uh you're feeling okay today and it's even in my uh deepest darkest depression there's always been a scandal who's like what's up baby how you doing uh-huh are you okay today no want to cry let's do it so <laughs> it's definitely had that kind of uplifting uh in my uplifting experience in my personal life um, for me, so I grew up in Hong Kong, so I grew up watching rugby, um, but my parents were always adamantly against me ever playing it. They were like, you know, you're going to get hurt. It's, it's too dangerous, all this stuff. So when I got to college, uh, when I came to college in the States, it was, I decided that was my chance. Um, so I joined, I played for a couple of years, but as someone who was, you know, out and gay in college, it wasn't necessarily the most welcoming environment. Uh, you know, a bunch of 19-year-old guys, it's, it's just not always very uh, queer-friendly. Um, so when I moved to DC, I decided that, you know, I would give another shot this time with an IGR team where there was an explicit mission of inclusion and acceptance, and it was going to be a great way to meet other queer men in the city and just have a good support system. Uh, cause I moved here with no contacts and had no idea. Um, but for me, actually, the biggest thing was after, after a few months of being on the scandals, uh, and just talking to other people who were, I guess, real adults, uh, as, as I thought at the time, um, you know, people who are successful in their careers, people who are successful in their family life, um, folks who really just had everything kind of figured out, um, that 
kind of inspired me to finally take the leap and come out to my parents um, on coming out day in 2018. Um, so having the Scandals family, just having all these role models and the support system really gave me the feeling that, you know, now it was finally okay to, to break it to my mom and, uh, you know, live my life. Good for you. That's, that's really great. Um, and that's a really good sort of transition to my next question, which is, um, tell me what you think about how important it is to still have LGBTQ focused sports teams in 2021. Hugely thousand percent hugely um it's like any sort of uh, lgbtq space it's a uh, a safe space where uh against the kind of marginalization and discrimination of the world at large you can kind of uh check your battle at the door so and uh have a chance to actually breathe for a second and really <clears throat> good a little bit of weight off my shoulder as we all kind of share an experience it's a tier where we're like we're going to accept you for who you are uh, as a person and really uh, uh, here is where you will, like I said, truly find that uh, community who's like, hey, we're here for you. What, what, what do you need? And I mean, it's crazy how like in the, uh, on the kind of the world stage, the world rugby uh, organization is kind of debating whether trans athletes uh, belong in rugby. And it's as someone who's all, who's just like, I've always been supported by my team. And now to see that on this kind of, further uh bigger stage there's so many people who are facing this kind of discrimination it just feels you just feel even more uh uh thankful that you have this foundation and that you found some people who are going to stick by your side um so uh, just having these teams that are like hey we get it (laughs) out there kind of sucks uh in here you're good baby (laughs) so um I think in this day and age, having queer athletic spaces uh, is still absolutely critical. Um, not only just for individuals like myself who were really looking for community and support as someone who's you know new to Washington DC, um, but also as a way for us to organize. And Josh touched on this as well. You know, as a group and along with the other IGR teams, um, we're able to really advocate for queer um, and particularly recently trans issues um, on the world stage with regards to, for example, world rugby, um, you know, taking action against trans athletes who want to play uh, in a division that matches their gender. Um, It just, you know, to have this group of clubs around the world Mm -hmm. stand up and say, no, we stand with our trans brothers and sisters, our trans siblings, um, and they deserve a spot you know, on the roster, they deserve a place on the pitch. I think that's really powerful and that's really essential to continue having. So I would um, just add on uh, that a lot of people, um, a lot of people in our community came from homes that were not necessarily supportive and going to join a traditional rugby team is not necessarily gonna give you that same degree of support um, that you would get from joining an IGR team. So I think that, um, that, that coming to the scandal, somebody that maybe came from a, you know, a, a very um, difficult childhood or a difficult upbringing, or maybe they, maybe they have a career where um, being out and proud is, is not necessarily acceptable. 
um, having a place where it's unabashedly um, open and, and acceptable to be gay um, and still be able to compete and, and sort of realize your potential athletically is vitally important. And I think this same argument applies to, to gay bars. And some people say, you know, that, that we're, we're, we're post-gay bar. I know that like a lot of friends in Boston, most of their gay bars have closed and they always try and argue that we're so progressive that we're, we're beyond the concept of a gay bar. But I think the concept of a, a safe space, whether it's a bar or a rugby team or uh, any other sports team, it, it is going to have a, a vitally important role um, for our community for, for the foreseeable future. And, and I think that it would be a sad day when they all disappear. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys. This has been really fun and I really enjoyed getting to hear what you had to say. Um, before I let you go, can you let us know, do you have a website, some social media handles? Uh, what do you want to shout out so people can find out more about you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, um, Washington Scandals Rugby. Uh, feel free to DM us on Instagram as well at Scandals RFC. Uh, we accept inquiries and interest from pretty much all channels. Our main website is scandalsrfc.org and we look forward to seeing everyone on the pitch at practice sometime. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Thanks, Laura. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.